morning, Grace. Man, I'm excited. I'm excited. So I'm just going to be honest with you guys. We need to buckle up. I hope you brought your Bibles today. We will be uh, exercising those things, okay? You know, we might, you might have lost some pages by the time we're done today. Uh, I just want to encourage you, man, if you go to a church and they don't be open in the Bible, like, I don't need a motivational speech on a Sunday morning. I need Jesus, okay? So you are going to... No, you're clapping now till we start reading all of it, Okay. Uh, but we are going to be in the end of Genesis 18 and all of Genesis 19 today. So I'm just going to encourage you now to open up your Bibles because uh, we are about to get into it. Okay, before we do that, find a neighbor, turn to a neighbor real quick. Just give them a high five and tell them you love them. Come on. All right. We need that today. We need that today. Now everybody, give me an air five and tell me you love me. Okay, come here. Thank you. Needed that this morning, too. Well, come on. That's what I'm talking about right there. Mm-hmm. Man, I love y'all, too. I love y'all, too. <clears throat> um, yeah, so quick little thing. It was my birthday yesterday, okay? Birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, all, all of the gifts that you were going to tie to the church go to Phil today. So <laughs> the bucket is right here. Just kidding, just kidding. I would rather you give money to Grace, actually. But I am the big 3-0. Yeah, the big 3-0. I'm old, officially. Don't know. You don't have to be like, no, you're not. Yes, I am. Okay, I woke up this morning more tired than normal, and I realized it's because I'm 30 now. All right, should we read the Bible? <laughs> All right, we are in Genesis, and we're continuing. How many of you here were last week? How many of you here last week? Awesome, awesome. A really good-looking man brought a message that hopefully was beneficial to you. And they brought me up again. I'm not sure why. Uh, But let me just recap last week if you weren't here uh, because I think context is important. I've said this over and over that if we're tracking with this story of Genesis, we got to really be following the story, okay? So uh, just a quick recap of of what we talked about last week. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to dive into some scripture, all right? But Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18, they have this interaction with these three visitors, right? At least so my Bible says, three visitors. And we talked about kind of, you know, how Abraham approached them, why that may have been important uh, and what that means for us. One of the things that we kind of postured is that this could have been Jesus, Right? We talk about how throughout Genesis already there's been a handful of times that we look back and we're like, man, because of certain things that were said and how they were said and, and how people were acting towards them, you know, it could have been Jesus incarnate. And I even confessed in some ways that I think I tend to chop Jesus up to just like, oh, he came and he lived 33 years and then he died and he's the savior of the world. Yes, but also he's always been and always will be and he's God and can do what he wants. And that just makes me want to dive into the Old Testament more because he's as prevalent here as he is when you read through the Gospels. So we talked about that. We broke down this interaction. We talked about how they called Sarah by her new name, even though she had just been named this. And these traveling men had no reason to know outside of God himself that she had this new name. And I challenged us and asked, hey, do you have people speaking who God calls you to you? Do you have people in your circles that are speaking God's truth and identity into you? Or do you have people who are calling you backwards? People who are holding you back, not to God's identity, but maybe the culture or what they've put on you, maybe a past self, past mistakes. 
We talked about how Sarah laughs and she's doubting God's promise and, and we actually understand it was this internal doubting and yet God was like, why are you laughing? She probably was a little freaked out. Another reason it might have definitely been Jesus, which is really cool. And we said, man, do you guys know that what happens up here is just as seen by God of what we do out here? And we talked about taking captive thoughts and how that when we don't do that, they will eventually be released as actions. And then we talked about this idea of hard and wonderful, and I was really excited about this one. You know, I'm not necessarily like a Hebrew or Greek nerd, but when something pops up that's really cool, we should get excited about it. And the word that God used in this passage for hard in Genesis 18, earlier in Genesis 18, when he asked Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? We actually uh, correlated that it's the same word used for wonderful in Isaiah 9-6 when it calls God a wonderful counselor. It, it translates to he's a hard counselor. Not, not meaning he's, he's arrogant or meaning he's rude or, or abusive or any of that, but, but so often when I'm challenged by God, it's what? Hard. So then we can look to the passage where he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? He's looking right at Sarah's hard situation and saying, is anything too wonderful for me? Don't you know I can do this? And I asked, man, what's it for you? What's hard? We prayed together, which was beautiful. We got in pockets and we had some people be honest and transparent about hardships. And I don't know how those are going, but I hope you're experiencing some freedom from them or at least trusting God more this week as we walk in. And these are the things that we talked about. And we're going to pick up here at the tail end of this same interaction. So we're going to be starting in verse 16, Genesis 18, verse 16. Uh, and we'll just get all into it because we're about to read so, so much. Okay. All right. So I'm going to pray. We need that. All right, let's do it. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that um, you, you have even just catered this message as recently as 7.30 this morning, changing things that you wanted said. So, God, we're just trusting that what is said is what you once said. Would my words fall? Would yours stand? Would none of us leave just feeling like we uh, were engaged for an hour? Would we engage with you? Oh, man, God, would we just encounter you in a fresh way this morning, whether it's for the first time ever or the 9,000th time ever. I don't know about everybody else, but I need you just as much this morning as I did when I got saved 10 years ago. Amen. So thank you that you are always here. God, it's never been about if you're here. It's always been about if I'm paying attention. So make us aware. Help us to be open. We trust you with this time. We ask that as we read 19,000 verses that we would get the names right. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God people saying, amen. Come on now. Come on now. <laughs> I'm not going to make the comment. Y'all already know. There's a reason some of you don't volunteer on the worship team. All right. Just kidding, I don't either. You don't want to hear me sing. I brought up that I wanted to sing at the end of this because I have a song in mind, and Jesse was like, no. That's good, good godly conviction right there. All right, are you able to follow me, Jesse? All right, bet, cool. I don't like having to click it, I get lost. Verse 16, verse 16, the title, at least for me, says, Abraham pleads for Sodom. If you didn't know, we're getting into the story of Sodom and Gomorrah today, so that's fun. All right. Verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. So this is the three visitors. This is the continuation of the story we studied last week. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on the way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him so that he'll be, he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So that the Lord will bring 
bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. It's right back to this promise. He keeps reiterating to them. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I'll go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And if not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, this gets interesting because he starts directly dialoguing with God. So we should probably pay attention. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? <laughs> okay. Two quick things. Not even a, This isn't even a point. Okay. But this interaction between Abraham and God sounds like a lot of how we treat God. It sounds a lot like the culture being like, oh, really, if God's good, then what about this? You know what I'm saying? That's exactly what Abraham's doing right here. He's almost like testing and challenging God. Now, what's really interesting and the reason I stop here is because I tend to think if I'm having a conversation with someone who doesn't believe what I believe and then they have all these questions that, in my opinion, are pretty easily answered, but like they're hotbed type items and they haven't really talked to somebody who can answer them well, uh, it goes something to the effect of this. Like, well, yeah, I get it, but God loves me, right? Well, what about this? You know what I'm saying? I didn't get the Lamborghini that I wanted. You know what I'm saying? How could he possibly be good? Usually it's more serious than that, but you know where I'm going. Now, I would tend to want to treat these people like, shut up, you're not God. He is. It doesn't matter what you think. Oh, I kicked my water bottle. Look how big this is, by the way. I got it for my birthday, <laughs> which was yesterday. <laughs> Completely lost my train of thought there. Um, so I would tend to think the way he would treat people or, or why I would want to treat people is be like, man, squash it. No one's worried about what you think about God. He's still God. But that's not what he does here. Like, God interacts back with him. So let's pay attention to that and how God speaks to him, all right? So he says, far be it from you, will not the judge of the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Like, he doesn't say, be quiet, I'm the boss. He's like, okay, what else you got? And then Abraham spoke up again. My dude was bold. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, there's humility coming in, so that's good. What if the number of righteous people is less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? God does some quick mental math, and he says, if I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found? He said, for the sake of 40, I won't do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but just let me speak once more. Okay. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, <clears throat> and Abraham returned home. So um, there's a reason I'm going to read all of that and all of chapter 19. And I'll explain that in a little bit. But the primary reason is simply this. I think we skip scripture that's confusing. <laughs> If we're being honest, that is just like, okay, that seems like a meaningless interaction because then we know he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah anyways. So why did I need to bother reading this? And then Sodom and Gomorrah is a really weird story, and I'm going to read every word of it <laughs> out loud. <laughs> okay? But I think it's because so often we tend to skip hard stuff when we don't need to, and we shouldn't. 
And I'll explain a little bit why. But here's why we picked up here instead of just going right to 19. So we have these 15 verses of scripture that we talked about last week where we pulled so much out of it. And Abraham walks away with these men. Last week I even brought up how that would have been customary. So, like, that's what you do when travelers come through. So he walks away with these men. And we may believe that one of them was Jesus, which is super, super cool. But at the minimum, God's speaking through these people, like, directly. And this is the interaction that we see afterwards. Abraham pleads for Sodom, most likely because he knows his nephew Lot is there and his family. All right, so I think, you know, I don't know this for sure, but as he's like whittling down the numbers, he's probably calculating like, wait, how many like daughters are in there? Like I got to get Lot's family, make sure they're covered. You know what I mean? And he has this interaction with God and God responds to him rather than shutting him down. All right, so my first point, we're going to get right into it is this. God hears us and works with us. God hears us and works with us. Our faith, I mean, down to the absolute base foundation, is so different than any other world religion because we believe our God interacts with us. We don't serve this distant, off, far God that, like, you just have to do the right things throughout the day. And if you pray at the right times and if your Bible devotional has a great streak, you know what I'm saying, and you know more scripture than everybody else, then you are close to God. It's not our faith. That's not our faith. Those are tools and avenues to get closer to him, right? But, but our faith says this, <clears throat> God did it all. God did everything. You could do nothing about it. No other world religion says that. They're all like, you got to act right and you'll be reincarnated. It is like a holy cow or whatever. And then like, if you pray at certain times when the clock strikes, then you're a good believer in whatever that religion may be. Not even knocking religions. That's literally what two of the big ones believe. That's not what our faith says. We have these interactions here where not only is God directly speaking with one of his children, but the child, like Abraham that is, like questions God and literally is like, hey, are you serious? How could you do this if what I think about you is true? And he doesn't shut it down. He isn't like, who the heck do you think you are? He talks to him, engages with him. In fact, he shifts because of his child's requests. Now, maybe you're like, no, he doesn't. Yes, he does. I'll give you another example. Moses and Aaron is one of my favorite, like, stories in the whole Bible. Here's why. Because Moses is, like, this extremely influential dude who we know he led them out of Egypt and all this stuff. He parted the Red Sea. My man was doing crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. And literally, when God is calling Moses into, like, this ministry, saying, hey, you're the dude for this job, Moses literally says, excuse me, my Lord, pick someone else. To God, he said that. Okay. And then he said it again. <laughs> he says it twice. God's like, no, 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 no. I picked you for this. I promise you're the one. I'm God. You're not. I already know the future. So, like, let's just do it. And he says, excuse me once again, my Lord. Pick someone else. God does not smite him right then. God says, fine. It says he, like, burned with anger, actually. Now, you can go read the passage for yourself. It says he burned with anger and then said, how about your brother Aaron? Could he speak for you? Man, God loves us so much and is so intimate with us, so intimate with us, that even when he's angry, he works with us. I don't really like to work with people that make me angry. Do you? Okay. So you're sitting next to some of them. Like. And God so gently is, is just different. Abraham's questioning him to his face. If this was Jesus, this is literally Abraham to the son of God's face saying like, 
You can't do that. That's not you, God. Who can tell me who I am? I am, I am. (laughs) And yet he does, yet he does, yet he does. Oh, man, it's so, so, so cool that God interacts with us. He hears us and he works with us. I think one of the most amazing and unique things that we have to embrace about our faith, if we're not walking in this, I'm not saying perfectly, I'm not saying you're hearing words from God audibly come out of the sky. I'm not saying any of that stuff. But I'm saying if you aren't working to walk in the understanding and truth that you can have this with God, you can right now. It's not just reserved for pastors who you view as more holy or something like that. I promise you I'm not, okay? It's just as available for you as it is for me. Now, the question is how much are we leaning into it how much are we acknowledging God's voice in our life here's what I think a lot of us do and I even have some conversations with people recently that would back this up is that God will do something crazy in our life and he'll interact and we call it whatever we might be but then we'll say we don't hear from God I just want to pause like hearing from God is as simple of God's doing something cool in your life you're hearing from God you're learning something about him like when you read scripture you're hearing from God If you haven't heard from God, that means your Bible's closed. Mm -hmm. One thing we have to lean into, and I believe it's the, like, like our faith, I think, you know, and I'll say this to anybody's face, is the only valid faith. It's not a knock on someone else who believes something different. I just don't think there can be a bunch of gods that are all right. I think there's one God that's right. I think it's our God, and he came through a man named Jesus to save us all from our sin, right? That's what I believe. But what's so unique about our faith versus others is that our prayers can shift God's actions. I'm not necessarily saying we change God's mind. I'm not saying any of that type of stuff. I'm simply saying he already knows everything. He already knew everything. He always will, and we play a role in that, and our prayers can shift God. That's amazing. Why don't we pray more when we see in the Bible that prayer can shift God's actions? That's amazing. He hears from us. He works from us. Like, it's right here throughout the script. We see God tell Abraham his plans. He didn't need to do that. He wanted Abraham to play a role. He told Abraham his plans, and Abraham is bold or stupid enough, whichever one you choose, to basically be like, are you sure you want to do that? What if there's a single good person there and God doesn't zap him? He says, he actually agrees, fine. If we find a righteous person, we find this many righteous people, I'm not going to do it. I have to just tell you guys, I'm personally not very interested in being involved in a faith of a cosmic dictator who's disinterested in me, selfishly and arrogantly ruling the cosmos. That's not a God I'm interested in. Even if, like, let's say our faith is the wrong one, and it's not, and there is a different God who does like God that way, however you want to word that, I'm I'm okay. I'll go wherever I'm supposed to go that's not with him because he's not going to be good to be with anyways. Our God's not like that. And we can look at these interactions and actually learn about the character of God that makes us to want to be with him more. You should not read scripture and be like, this is confusing and weird. You should read it always knowing every single word is meant to pull you closer to him. And if you seek for it, you will find it. Matthew 7, 7, look that puppy up. Now, don't get me wrong, God's in charge, okay? So so in many ways, God is a dictator. Like, this is a monarchy. I mean, there is not like multiple leaders of this thing. He is in charge, but he is a good, compassionate, merciful God who listens and hears us and wants to do things with us. Man, that's an interactive God I do want to be a part of. I I do want to live in that kingdom. I do want to be a part of that team. 
And I thank God that I am, and I thank God that many of you are as well. He wants to do life with you. He wants to hear from his creation, even to the point that he listens and takes our thoughts into consideration. That's a good God. That's a good father. And if you're not convinced, look at Moses and Aaron. Look at, look at Revelation 5, 8, one of my favorite passages in Revelation, because that's a hard book if we're talking about hard books. But Revelation 5, 8 literally says that the 24 elders kneel down at the throne of God, and they're holding golden bowls of incense, which if you look forward in Revelation, are the same golden bowls dumped out during the coming of Jesus. And you know what it says they're full of? The prayers of God's people. Do you know that your prayers play a role in Jesus coming back? Your prayers play a role in his uh, inevitable return, and however that's going to look, I'm not really sure. I think he's probably going to come down on an epic steed riding a cloud. I don't know. But your prayers shift that. He hears from you, and he's working with you and for you. And I want to encourage us, and this is also a little bit of a challenge, if you don't feel that, that's not on his end. In the same way Abraham did this here, and we see this interaction, we need to be people who work with God, who speak to him. Who, it says in Hebrews, it says we can approach his throne what? Boldly. That's a unique way to view it, right? Not only can we talk to God, we are commanded to approach him boldly. Why? Because of what Jesus did for us. Abraham did this. Let me encourage you today. You can believe for things. You can pray for things. You can have faith for things. And then they happen because of this exact dynamic. Because God's listening. He's hearing and he's shifting. You can never have a prayer answered that you don't pray. <laughs> I guess he could do what he wants, but you play a role is my point. So then we transition into Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> All right, so if you guys are like, ooh, this has been really encouraging, cool, we're about to talk about a city being destroyed, so let's go. All right, the whole chapter 19, all of it, literally, let's go. Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed, so clearly Abraham's pleas did not totally get the job done, but that's not his fault. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot, we see Lot, this is the last chapter we hear anything about Lot, which is important. And Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city for those, uh, sorry to keep pausing, I do have major ADHD if you didn't already know that about me. Uh, but I think it's important to know that Lot is the nephew of Abraham, if you didn't know that. So they are related, okay? Important correlation. Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and he bowed down with his face to the ground. Again, notice something about these men. Now it says there's only two. Don't totally know what shifted here, but still things going on that are pretty awesome. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way in the morning. No, they answered. Okay. We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they go with him and they entered his house. Again, that, these are angels. It, that's what this says in verse 1 at least. And they're responding to a, a believer, well, we, we hope lots of believers. It lasts a little wild. You're about to learn that. But he clearly recognized these godly people, these angels, right? But again, we just see an angelic, like heavenly being responding to us. Man, that's cool. That's really cool. So he insisted so strongly that they went and they entered the house. He prepared the meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom... Both young and old surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who have come to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside. And we're just going to do this, y'all. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind them and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. If we stopped there, I'd be like, Lot, okay, cool. He kept going. Verse 8. 
Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to, anything to these men, for they've come under the protection of my roof. We're going to talk about all this stuff. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break the door, but the men inside reached out, pulled Lot back into the house, and shut the door. They then struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. Okay, it's just getting crazier. The two men said to Lot, do you have any, anyone else here, son-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and he spoke to his son-in-laws who were pledged to marry his daughters, the ones he just offered up to everybody. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord's about to destroy the city. But his son-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of the dawn, the angels urged Lot, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. You're going to be swept away with the, when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hands and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. For the Lord was merciful to them. Pause. It, again, I know this is weird, and I am going to break down what's going on, kind of, okay? But even in that, outside of some of the weirdness, I can't help but to see God's mercy all over it. They were fighting being saved. Sound like anybody you know? Man, I got people in my life where I'm like, dude, you need so much help, and I'm trying to give it to you. Oh, man. And the angels are just like, all right, I don't got time for you. Like, let's go. This is, you're not meant to die here with everybody else. All right. So they grabbed his hands. The Lord was merciful to them. Verse 17. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant has, if your servant has fav found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I, can't, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. Again, just us justifying things with God is wild. But we do it, whether or not we know it, all the time. <clears throat> he said to them, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. But flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That's why the town was called Zoar. But by the time... Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land, and the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities in the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Early in the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and then toward all the land of the plain, and he saw a dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. Verse 29 is, psh, we're going to talk about this one specifically. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Almost done, don't worry. Verse 30, Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, so they it doesn't make sense to me. He just argued that he didn't want to be in the mountains, so he went to this weird town called Zoar. And then the next verse, it's like, I mean, we just got amnesia out here, people. Like, we do. But he's now back in the mountains. His, him and his two daughters lived in a cave. If you've studied this passage, it's only getting weirder, okay? So just buckle up. One day the older daughter said to the younger, our father is old and there's no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. All right. The next, that night, they got their father to drink the wine. The older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down and when she got up. That's a lot of wine. 
34. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, last night I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their wine to drink that night also. The younger daughter went in and slept with him, and again, he was not aware of it when she lay down and when she got up. My dude should have drank some water in between this. I'm just being honest. Verse 36. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son. She named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites. You can actually track these lineages. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami, uh, and he's the father of the Ammonites today. Whoo! Okay. Anybody want to go home? Let's just end it right there. This is the word of the Lord. See you next Sunday. I'll tell you this, though. Uh, I did read all of that intentionally because as I read it, some of you were itching and twitching in your seats. I understand that. I was itching and twitching it while I read certain parts, and yet it is in here, okay? And yet God put it in here for a reason. So I read the whole thing to make us itch and twitch and realize that sometimes God itches and twitches us right towards new understanding. Man, we don't learn much when we're comfortable. So I'll say this, man, Ben and I... Uh, I told him uh, that I think I lucked out and pulled the oddest chapter of Genesis yet. I don't think it gets any odder, to be honest. But after just a little bit of time looking into it uh, and, of course, jokingly getting over the fact that it is odd, um, I think and even would argue I know there are principles and lessons that quickly become obvious. And if God wrote them down, uh, we need to hear them and they're meant to encourage us. And I just want to encourage us with this. Can we stop being afraid of the seemingly weird parts of the Bible? We need to stop that. Because I think if we're being honest, a lot of us completely avoid parts of the Bible like this because we don't know what to do with it. And, and I get that. <laughs> I understand, um, especially pre-Jesus, if I walked into a church and someone read all of that to me, I'd be like, church probably isn't for me. Okay, and look at me now. It is for me. It is for you. And God's word is still God's word. So we're going to break it down a little bit. And we're going to get into the hard parts of the Bible and, and extract, I think, what the heart of God is saying to us. And I bet some of you are like, I have zero idea, Phil, what you could possibly pull out. I'm going to impress you. Okay. So let's just acknowledge what's going on really quick because, again, we don't need to shy away from it. So I'm going to give you a rapid fill breakdown of exactly what the heck is going on here. Lot takes two men who are called angels into his house while Sodom is rampant with homosexuality and perversion and clearly all kinds of jacked up stuff because literally a mob shows up to try to take them and, and ravage them effectively. Well, then Lot is clearly messed up too because he offers up his virgin daughters to the angry mob instead of those people. The perversion is all the way real because then the mob is like, no, we don't even want them. We want the men, okay? At this point, the angels are basically like, man, this is exactly why we're here to destroy this place. You guys are messed up. So they make everyone blind. Not sure why they did that, uh, but it was effective because they got out. The angels are the only good ones in this story, clearly. So they help Lot and they help his family get out and they tell them not to look back. Well, since no one can do anything right in this story, Lot's wife looks back and becomes a pillar of salt. No idea what that means or looks like. But this whole story is wild, okay? Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed with burning sulfur. That's pretty much the part most of us had heard before. And Lot's family minus his wife are the only ones who do survive. Not done. Then the same daughters that Lot offered to an angry mob get him drunk and sleep with him with the justification of preserving their family line because now they live in the mountains and there's nobody there. All right. That's what's happening in this story. Got it? Who's got the first point? So someone started waving. I was like, you got to come up here. I'm interested to hear 
So while I'm not going to focus on a lot of the weird stuff, but I will talk about some of it, uh, I want to just first and foremost address the elephant in the room of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah because it's this primary biblical story we have of God unleashing his just judgment on people. And it tends to be a turnoff for others. Like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is usually something that even as a Christian we avoid talking about a little bit. All right? Here's my first point. We're diving right into all of this. Healthy fear of God includes understanding his wrath. Healthy fear of God includes understanding his wrath. Really quick little caveat because I'm not going to talk about this. When I say fear, I am not talking about trembling because he's scary. That's not even what in the Bible, when it uses the word fear, it's talking about. When the Bible uses the word fear of God, which it does say that phrase many, many times, it it translates very closely to respect, awe, like, man, you are awesome and can do whatever the heck you want. And that's what the Bible describes as fear. So when I say healthy fear of God, I mean healthy respect of God. A healthy understanding of who he is and what he can do includes understanding his wrath. Okay, God to be very clear, is a God of love, mercy, kindness, and goodness. He displays his compassion for me and for you and for all of us over and over and over and over again, not only throughout scripture where you could find it on almost every page, but in our lives now. If you woke up this morning and you're breathing oxygen molecules that you did not create in a chemistry lab, you are blessed and God's grace is on you. Because I don't know how to make those and I I was a chemist for a while. I can't create oxygen. I can't do it. God can, you're breathing it, you're alive, his compassion is for you this morning. He didn't have to give you that. But to fully understand God's grace and mercy, which are things we really like, we really like the idea of grace and mercy, we have to understand what we need mercy from. It is fairly useless to love the idea of grace without understanding why you even need it. If I've never done anything wrong and I don't need any type of judgment or punishment in my life, I don't need grace. Grace has become useless for me. So we have to understand what we need his mercy and grace for, and then that changes how we view it. And the truth is that God is perfect and God hates sin. He can do those things at the same time. And every time we choose something opposite of God, anytime we we don't listen to his, his commands and requests of us, anytime we walk in ways that don't line up with how Jesus walked and did his thing, it's what the Bible calls sin. And, and then that is against God. That is, that is something that is uh, due a punishment against God. And if God is the ultimate judge, which we believe that he is, we believe he made everything, created everything, therefore his way is the only way, there can only be one truth type of idea that when we commit a quote-unquote crime against him, punishment is due. Now, I often give this example. Uh, Whether you're political or not or any of these different things, I'm not personally, but I understand the value of certain things. When someone commits a crime, what do we usually want for that person? A punishment. If someone murders somebody in my community, I do not want that person walking around the street. Like, if there's a sex offender, I want to know that little red dot on their house. Not judgment against them, I just have two little daughters. Right? This isn't, like, none of us would argue this is wrong. None of us say say they shouldn't be punished. We could get into the nitty-gritty little stuff, well, I don't know about this versus this. It's not what I'm talking about. We agree holistically as a people that there should be punishment for wrongdoing. The kingdom of God is no different. So therefore, when we talk about these ideas of of wrath or God's anger, which the Bible over and over says that God does have anger, it does say that God is a jealous God. He's jealous for you. 
He's jealous for you and the things that you choose over him. He doesn't want those things in your life. We then are due a punishment, right? I'm going to break it down a little bit more. I think in westernized Christianity, when I say that, I mean the American church specifically. We focus on this idea of the love of God so much and in unhealthy ways that we begin to dissociate that his love is sometimes very hard. We talked about that last week, right? Hard and wonderful are interchangeable for God. We begin to disassociate that, that love isn't just this always flitting, like good feeling of I have butterflies and God, you're amazing, and you answered every one of my prayers, right? And then what we do is we start to confuse and mesh these cultural ideas of love and tolerance and inclusivity with what God's love actually is. To be clear, God's love is good, and it is tolerant, and it is inclusive, but can I tell you something? When I drive past a church and you have one opportunity to put something on your sign and it says nothing about Jesus, but just that we love all and all are welcome, I just think you're missing it. That doesn't tell me at all what your church stands for. You know what I'm saying? And I think in Westernized Christianity, we, we throw this not biblical idea of love out there when God's love is equally intertwined with his wrath. God's love is equally intertwined with his jealousy for us. The reason we need his love is because we've broken every rule in the cosmic handbook, and there should be a punishment for that. And let me just encourage you, when I say that a healthy fear of God includes understanding his wrath, when I know how deserving I am of punishment and that Jesus took it for me, I love Jesus infinitely more than if he's just a cute thing of that he loves you and there's no consequences for anything. Do you know what I'm saying? I think there's a shallowness to what our relationship with God will look like if we don't understand why we even need his love. We need his love because he's angry about the sin in our life. But being the good, amazing, compassionate, kind God he was, he sent his son to deal with it for us because he knows that we couldn't. And because I understand I was due a punishment, and because I understand God can do stuff like this, that's why it's in here. It makes me love Jesus infinitely more. I, I don't think that there's a question as to why so many, uh, I'm just going to generically say churches, I'm not attacking anything or even a denomination or any of that, but I just think generic Christianity is so shallow in America. There's no real conviction when it comes to our faith. Like, we, we think we can sit in a church pew for two hours, and that's a relationship with God. It's because we don't fear him appropriately. I'm not saying that we should look at Sodom and Gomorrah and walk around and be like, the Lord is going to smite your whole town if you don't get it together. We shouldn't do that. And if America's any inkling, he hasn't done it yet. He's being patient with us. But I think what we do need to look at something like Sodom and Gomorrah is use that to understand this is very much in God's arsenal and he's choosing not to. And it makes us understand his love all the more. Okay? <laughs> all right. Let's keep going then. Let's keep going. Uh, Y'all didn't know the story, uh, Sodom, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah was going to make you leave and love in Jesus more, did you? Now you do. All right, let's keep going. Here's the second thing that stuck out to me. Lot is Abraham's nephew. I already mentioned that. So this, this is at a bare minimum like a family member of a very godly patriarch of our faith. Like a dude who was favored by God, anointed by God, given a covenant, multiple covenants from God that he's going to go do amazing things. Right? 
and this is his nephew. So there's, there's some God ties there. I don't, of course, know directly. I mean, it was a lot of devout man of God. We don't really hear a ton about him. But we know there were ties there. Like we know he has some level of faith. He recognized these angels, right? So there, there's definitely something going on there. Even like the bloodline, right? We talk about bloodlines, man, Abraham, to all, all the way up to Jesus, right, man? Lot has some of this blood in him. Like that's cool, okay? That's cool. <laughs> And what we see after this family tie, right, I would, for me at least, I would expect a certain type of living out of Lot. I would expect, man, your uncle's a beast. He's out here killing it. Last chapter, man, we just, Abraham's teaching us stuff and we're learning from him and all this different stuff. So I'd expect a little bit out of you too. And then we read this. Okay. And the nephew of Abraham is offering up his daughters to angry mobs. And like, then his daughters are sleeping with him. And it's just really, there's weirdness going on. And it doesn't feel very godly. And it doesn't feel like Lot's very connected. You know what I'm saying? Acting a fool like this. And I want to posture to us the reason that is, is because of where he was and who he surrounded himself with. Here's my second point. No matter who you are, you can easily become who you surround yourself with. No matter who you are, this was a nephew of a patriarch, a dude we've all heard about, even if you're not Christian. We've all heard about Abraham, right? I mean, this dude was a big deal, and his nephew is acting a ho-ho fool. His, even, even like the God blood in him, like even the faith culture he had in his family, if he put himself and when he put himself around the wrong people, he started to be them. He started to become them. He started to think it was normal to offer up your daughters to a mob of angry people. He's living in the worst place around people who clearly have no interest in any level of morality. And then he starts to replicate some of those things. Let me just ask you a question. A lot of you are faith-filled individuals. Do you have family members in your life that you've watched them get in the wrong circle and then just go the whole way the wrong way? Show of hands, anybody? I got, I got some too. I got some too. And I think from the outside looking in, it's really easy to diagnose that, right? Like, let's say you got the wayward child. Let's say you've got a brother, sister who just, they're not on the same wavelength as you. You got friends who you try to talk to about God and they're just not having it and they got all their own lame excuses. And you look at their life and you're like, man, it's so obvious why you got the problems you got. Look at who you spend your time with. And yet, you know who the people who are the most blind to it usually are? us while we're in it. Do you think Lot by nature wanted to be like a part of the most weird dramatic story in the Bible? Probably not, but I would venture to say, this is Phil kind of reaching a little bit, so take it as that, take it as that. I would venture to say, it says he was a foreigner. The mob called him a foreigner. So I would venture to say he showed up and wasn't like them, but slowly but surely became like them. Who are you around? Who are you spending your time with? I asked this last week too, okay? And this is almost a continuation of that same challenge because this all lines up, man. This is the whole story, right? No matter who you are, how strong you think you are in faith, how resilient your personality is or not resilient, maybe you're the type that you know you're codependent and you will immediately start following other people's habits. That's a good thing to be aware of. No matter how headstrong or not headstrong you are, the people you spend the most time with will be who you become. It's just natural. It's natural. I mean, maybe you're not totally convinced yet. 
I, it, it, there's not a, it's not a coincidence that we're in Shrewsbury, Pennsylvania, and 99% of us probably have identical political beliefs. I'm not saying that there aren't right and wrongs in politics. There very much are. But you believe certain things for a reason. So much of who we are and what we believe and why we believe things, even how we speak, our accents, all of this is based on what? Where you grew up. Who raised you? the type of community you were in. I mean, we don't need to look far to see that really populated cities think one way about things. Rural areas think completely different. In the end, it's not about some of us being morally superior to another person. We just live in a different place around different people. Do we see how important it is then to surround ourselves with the right people? Lot was a god, hopefully, you know, at some point, a godly man in a godly family. His uncle's awesome, and look at him acting a whole fool. But look where he was. Look at who he was around. I think there's two levels to this. One, I mentioned this last week. I'm going to word it similarly with a caveat. Like, I said, start dropping those negative people in your life. Jeff gave me a little pushback. He's like, that's a good principle. Be careful just because you don't want people to just drop someone cold turkey when they shouldn't have. They should have been gracious there. Uh, What I am saying is you, you cannot, you cannot expect to grow in faith, expect to grow in positivity, expect to grow in happiness, expect to grow in a fulfilled life if you aren't surrounding yourself with people pushing you towards that. You can't. You just can't. You can't. Okay? I'll tell you something. I'm a very positive person, very, very positive. I haven't necessarily always been like that, but can I tell you something? I surround myself with positive people so that when I'm with the negative people, they don't pull me into that negativity. Who are you surrounding yourself with? You want to be a more bold person for your faith? Are you surrounding yourself with bold people of faith? I like to think that when I'm out in public acting a whole fool, talking to anybody about Jesus that has ears, that it encourages people around me to be bold in their faith. Hang around me more if you want that. How about this? If I want to grow in holiness, I want to be more disciplined. I can struggle being a disciplined individual. Probably not surprising, even based on how I speak, right? I'm all over the place. Discipline can be, what do I need then? I need to get around disciplined people, not be around the people that I think are more fun because they're spontaneous with me. I got to have one a little more than I have the other. You can have both. Are you all hearing me right now? I'm not saying to cut someone like this today, but I am saying, man, if your best friend isn't pushing you towards Jesus, I don't know why you call them your best friend. I'm not saying don't be their friend. You need to. I'll just be honest with you, man. Like, I wouldn't hang out with none of y'all if it wasn't for Jesus, okay? (laughs) I probably wouldn't. No, I'm just kidding. Man, no matter who you are, you can easily become like who you surround yourself with. I just think it's so clear that it's important that we take this seriously. Lot is our example. And I think of even just Romans 12 too, man. It's a command from God to not be conformed, but to be transformed. What he's saying there, man, one of the best ways to do that is get around people aiding your transformation, not stopping it. That clicked. I'm going to go there since it clicked. If you got people in your life who you know are not aiding in transformation to be closer to Jesus, you got to be around them less. All right. We talked about this last week, and I I felt like it just fit really, really well again. So Jesus uh, uh, spent significant, listen, even as our last example with him, Jesus, who we should do everything like, 
spent significant time with the lowly, the hurting, the outcast, the messed up, the drunkards, all those people. Like that was a lot of his ministry. And yet who was he with the most? First of all, his father. Second of all, his disciples. Did that make him ineffective because he spent a lot of time with his disciples? No, it made him effective. All right. Last thing, last thing, speaking of godly people, godly teams, finding a squad. Man, I just want to encourage you, if you don't feel like you have a godly squad, one, you go to a big church. There's a lot of people here. Find some. That's good. That's a good, that's a good thing. KB was one of my favorite rappers, and he has a line that says, they say millennials are leaving God. I just smile like you really ought to see the squad. And I feel like that, my life's like that. No, you millennials aren't leaving God. Which millennials are you talking to? I got a whole squad loving Jesus out here. Do you have that? Do you have that? I mean, I'm sweating and y'all aren't yet. So I need, some, I, need some, I need an amen. I need a hand raise. I need a hallelujah. Someone turn to a neighbor, give him a high five and say amen. Come on. I know y'all with me. It just can't tell sometimes, okay? You know, your auras aren't all available to me all the time. Your words are. All right. Verse 29 is my last point. For how much we covered, I'm on time. Amen. Verse 29 says this. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, this is after it's now happened, the deed is done. We've, we've talked through some of these uh, dynamics and what we can learn from them. He rem- said, it says he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where God lived. Your obedience can move God on another's behalf. Oh, man. This one's got to stick. Your obedience can move God on others' behalf. This ties into the point that we were talking about earlier, and we even mentioned a little bit last week. God hears us, and he works with us. We can take it to the next level based on Scripture right here. This isn't Phil making this up. Your obedience can move God to help someone who isn't being obedient. There is a favor that can be on your life, God's hand on your life, that it can radically, it could send waves through people around you solely because you're godly. Because you're being obedient, you're being faithful. I'm gonna, if, if you're not totally with me on this, don't worry, I'm gonna try to get you there. It says, God remembered Abraham and due to that brought Lot out of the cities where it was destroyed. I even looked through the passage. I wanted to find a single place that it says Lot was righteous. You wanna know how many times it says that? Zero times. At no point are we given anything, we were, we're actually given much the opposite to believe Lot should have been saved from this destruction. We see in many ways he seems to fit into it. We're, we're kind of posturing that he is around the wrong people and he's starting to act that way. He start, it's starting to become normal to him, right? And we're seeing a little bit of that evidence. And it says God remembered Abraham and brought Lot out. God moved based on Abraham's obedience for someone else. There is a power that we discount, my fellow brothers and sisters. We discount it all the time. How do I know? Because we don't walk in it. We don't act like we believe it. We don't act like it's real. That your faith, your faith, your faith, now obviously God giving it to you, let's give him all the glory and the credit because we're the worst. But your faith, your obedience, your, the favor on your life can radically impact other people not walking in obedience. God literally saved someone due to the righteousness of someone else. Who in your life 
Do you know need some saving that you have not maybe until this moment realized that your faith can help them get there? You've kept saying, well, they just got to own it and they got to get to church and they got to get their stuff together. And maybe that's all true. And yet maybe God's also saying, hey, if you stepped it up to the next level, it's going to affect them. You've been so worried about them finding faith, you've missed the next 10 steps I've tried to give you that if you had taken them, that person would have seen you and followed you. Oh, y'all didn't know Phil came to preach today. I'm 30 now. I got to. With age comes wisdom. <laughs> Listen to me real quick. If you are a parent with a prodigal child, keep being faithful. I know that's hard. And I, my girls are young right now. So, pff, man, pff, prayers that way. But if you're in the room right now and you think your, your son or your daughter is gone and lost and they haven't walked in the footsteps that you were really hoping, keep being faithful. I told you guys this last week, I walked away for years, and I was not acting right. And my mom, when I came back, when God got me back, because God did it, nobody else could do it. When God got me back, she showed me a notebook of prayers that she never stopped writing down even when I was gone. Keep being faithful. Oh, yeah, you can, you can clap. If you're in a marriage that feels like it's faltering, keep being faithful. If you have friends who just aren't getting it, keep being faithful. If you've been praying for that person or those things and you're starting to wonder why you're even wasting words, keep praying. If you've been making hard decisions to follow Jesus but don't know that you're seeing the fruit, keep making the hard decisions. God might be moving somewhere you aren't even seeing. Let me encourage you, if you are, oh man, if y'all aren't already encouraged, let me encourage you with this. Does it say anywhere that Abraham even knew Lot was saved? In fact, we don't hear about Lot a single time in the rest of Genesis. It says he went up and hid in the mountains and he lived with his daughters and that went a little funky and wonky. You know what I'm saying? Again, he was acting a whole fool. It doesn't even say Abraham knew he was saved. But that shouldn't matter. This is a whole other point that's not even for this day, but somebody might need this. Be faithful before you want fruit. Okay? You want fruit? Be faithful first. And how about this? How about this? Keep being faithful if you never see the fruit. We don't know Abraham saw this fruit. We don't know that he knows Lot's saved. Maybe he does, but let me tell you other things Abraham never saw. He never saw the promised land. He never saw those offspring of nations that he was promised. And you know what he did anyways? He was faithful. And we see people for generations and generations and generations later affected with fruit even though he never saw it. I don't know what your situation is, but you just need to hear it today. Keep being faithful. Keep being obedient. Keep praying. Bob, come on. I know we're making this connection. Keep doing it, my brother. Keep doing it. God will bring the fruit when he wants the fruit brought. But if we aren't planting the seeds, it's a lot harder for fruit to grow. That's all your faithfulness is. Seeds everywhere you go. Who cares when they bloom? That's not your job. Keep being faithful. Keep being faithful. Listen to me, we don't hear anything else about Lot. We don't know that he uh, is even confirmed with Abraham. We don't, he might not even know that Lot was saved, but he was. Because Abraham was faithful. Maybe you're in the room and you've grown tired and you don't feel like anything is changing and you think the world's crazy. Anybody say amen? Can I tell you the world doesn't change until God's people keep being faithful? 
I read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I can't help but see God's love all over it, his mercy, his provision. We get weirded out by stories like this. Are you leaving today realizing you don't have to be? And I don't know about you, but when I see that Abraham was remembered because of his faith, I don't know if you feel the same way, but if I can live my life in a way that God moves for others, I want to do it. If I can be a person of deep faith that shifts things for my loved ones, I want to do it. If I can be bold for God and it's going to change things around me, I'm going to be bold. Are you? Because you have that same power. And if the entire church of Jesus, all his people, started walking like this, man, there would be a lot of people shifting. And I thank God that there already is. So let's not discount what he's already done. But God is a God of more. And he doesn't stop till his plan is complete. I read this passage, I'm reminded of Jesus who bore that punishment that we couldn't do for ourselves. He died on the cross for the Sodom and Gomorrah in my life. He died on a cross for the Sodom and Gomorrah in your life. Paid the ultimate sacrifice because he loves us, because he loves you. And there's nothing else as good as him. So I'm going to ask you guys to stand. We're going to sing the song, nothing else. We're going to sing it like we believe it. And I'm going to pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you that I walked in tired and I don't feel tired anymore. Amen. I thank you that my church family and I are trying to grow closer to you, God. Would you forgive us for the ways that we're not doing that? But God, we thank you for how you are. We thank you that you're walking with us and you love us even when we don't love you back well. God, I ask for the Sodom and Gomorrah in my life and for my brothers and sisters' lives that you would just get rid of it. And you would also tell us and show us that you died for that on the cross. The cross is bloody and the tomb is empty and I thank you for that. As we worship, would we just realize that in every page of this book, Jesus is everywhere and there's nothing else worth any of it except for you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the truth of your word. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.